We've been taking the last couple weeks to address the fact that we are a church on mission and uh, how do we stay faithful in that? How do we stay on task? How do we stay obedient and fruitful in this season of mission? So we'll continue doing that today. This message is called The Reality of Serving. So before we read the word, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given the church and the world your word. But thank you that when we gather as a church, we don't need to think what to say. We don't need to make it up. We don't need to overly strategize or be architects of anything. Your, your word is our guide and our rule. And it is ultimate truth. It is true for all people at all times. And we ask that today it would be profoundly true in our lives. As I would teach and preach, Lord, we ask that you would anoint it for your glory. I want to get out of the way. I want your voice and your word and your heart to be heard in your church. So please help all of us with that, Lord. We ask it together. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll start out with a simple statement. You can decide whether or not you think it's true. Generally speaking, as, as humanity... We prefer to be served rather than serve other people, right? Generally speaking, as humanity, we prefer to be served rather than to serve other people. This is evident in the way that restaurants work, right? You go to a restaurant and you pay people to serve you, right? You have a server and they come to your table. And if they serve you well, you'll give them more money, but you expect to be served well. And restaurants that serve well, do well. And someone else is serving you by making the food and someone else is serving by cleaning up. And we are perfectly willing to pay to be served because generally speaking as humanity, we prefer to be served rather than to serve others. Again, this is evident in the fact that there is no restaurant that stays in business by opening its doors and saying, listen, you come and pay money and serve us. Have you been to that restaurant? That that restaurant doesn't exist. Where you go in, you give your good money, and and the the staff sits down, and the cooks sit down, and the busboys sit down, and you make the food, and you bring it, and you clean everything up. That's just stupid, right? That that would never last. It, It wouldn't make any money. Nobody would go there. Why? Because there is this intense desire in us to be served. More so, I would suggest, than there is to serve other people. Now, we do see examples, though, of, of individuals who are sort of countercultural, right? People in our society who serve self-sacrificially. And, and what do we do as a culture when we identify them? We, we praise them. We applaud them. <clears throat> we recognize them. And so we should. For example, the men and women in the armed forces, yeah. right? They serve us self-sacrificially. They, they should be recognized. They should be applauded. We should be thankful for them. There are individuals who serve our community in a self-sacrificial way, and we generally recognize them. There's some form where we say, thank you for that. That's, that's countercultural. That, that's profound that you're doing that. Most of us aren't doing that. There are, on occasion, people who serve humanity in such a way that we recognize them. In fact, ones that do that with the whole of their life become legend. Mother Teresa, legend. She, she served the most needy in humanity self-sacrificially with her life. That becomes, in our world, the stuff of legend because it's so incredibly rare. 
So those things are celebrated rarities. But more commonly, humanity wants to be served. Not only evidenced by restaurants, but evidenced by history. For example, throughout history, whenever humanity gets its way unchecked, it enslaves other people. Whenever humanity is given absolute power, it enslaves other people, kings, dictatorships. Whenever humanity has unending resource, as in money, it will pay to be extravagantly served. All of these are evidence of the fact that we have an intense desire to satisfy the base and common want of being served rather than serving. The other night I uh, had had a long day at work and, and went home for uh, dinner. And my wife has become an incredible cook in the 13 years that we've been married. When we first got married, she would heat up rosarita refried beans and grate some cheese. And we thought that was the bomb. <laughs> and now she is truly an incredible cook. I mean, she cooks wonderfully and she could do vegan and organic and super healthy and she could use anything she finds and whip it up really quick. Amazing stuff. Uh, I I love it. She's in the kitchen all the time now. She's really, really good. And I'm really, really happy about it. (laughs) So the other night she made one of her wonderful dinners and we sat down as a family to eat it, myself and Kate and Daisy and Isaiah. And we enjoyed the meal. And then what we generally do <clears throat> after we eat is we head over to the couch. And our uh, dining room is kind of connected to our living room. So we just slowly migrate from the, the dining table over to the couch because we like to get horizontal after we eat. We do it all the time. So we're laying there on the couch together. And I was bushed, had a long day. And then my wife, with no motive or agenda, just starts talking about, man, I'm, I'm beat I'm just done. I just want to go take a bath and soak. It's just been the craziest day and the craziest week. And she wasn't complaining. We're just talking. She goes, I just don't feel like I could do another thing. While she's saying this, I'm looking over at the kitchen (laughs) and the pile of dishes and the mess and everything strewn everywhere. While she is an incredible cook, she makes an incredible mess when she's cooking. And I'm looking over at that, and I'm kind of going, I know, I'm, me too. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just bushed. Oh, I know how you feel, baby. <laughs> and neither of us is really addressing it, but there's a tension building. <laughs> and the kids are sitting between us just kind of going, <laughs> they're picking up on it. And we're both talking about how difficult our day had been. And this tension built for about 15 minutes. And then my wife got up and cleaned the kitchen. And and in that moment, I, I was more interested in being served than in serving. The ruling impulse of my life was I I want to be comfortable on the couch and I want to be served. And so my wife that night not only cooked, but she cleaned as well. And that, that sort of thing, and, and we do that sort of thing in life all the time. We do it not only in our homes when it comes to cleaning the kitchen. We, we do it with our finances. We do it in the workplace. We do it in recreation. We do it in our sexuality. Those sort of selfish failures become part of our story. 
That, that sort of selfish failure is part of my story, that I have this intense ruling desire to be served rather than to serve. But when we look at God, God has a different story. You see, God has existed for eternity as a loving community, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And when God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, we saw evidence in his life, this intense, loving, self-sacrificial nature in God. For example, Jesus came and said to humanity, I only do what the Father wants me to do. I don't do my own will. I serve the Father. And what the Father wants me to do, that's what I do. And then we see in Scripture, in the Gospels, the Father saying things like, I've given all authority to the Son, and I give glory to the Son. And then we see that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father, and the job of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son and testify about the Son. So we see in the loving relational community that God is, this intense self-sacrificial love, evidence between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's God's story. God's story then expands into creation. God is love, and because of his love, and an act of love, God creates. And he creates humanity in his image. We're created in the image of God, which means, among many other things, that we were created to be self-sacrificial givers. We're created to be generous givers. That's part of the nature of God. He's love. He's a generous giver. We're created to be loving, generous givers. But our story is that we fail, right? The the fall. And because of the fall, the image of God in us has been marred and increasingly perverted throughout history. The image of God in us is, is marred and perverted so that when we are intended to be generous givers, self sacrificial servants, We, in original sin and in practical sin, have migrated to being greedy takers and selfish receivers. Created to be generous givers and self-sacrificial servants, we've become greedy takers and selfish receivers. And this, this intense desire that's in all of fallen humanity to be served, evidence through history, keeps us from serving others in a loving way. But then the gospel comes. And the gospel creates for us a new story. The gospel creates for us a new story. Because of our immense wickedness, Jesus comes to die on the cross for us. Okay, and what we realize about Jesus is that when it comes to getting your way, he could have his way anyway, all the time. He's a sovereign Lord of the universe, right? When it comes to absolute power, he's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And when it comes to resource, he has unending resource as the one through whom and for whom all things were created. And yet in juxtaposition to humanity, being able to get his way, have an absolute power and unending resource, he doesn't use it to enslave. Instead, Christ becomes the slave and dies a bloody death on the cross in our place to serve in an ultimate way undeserving humanity. So that when we hear this good news of the gospel of what Christ has done for us, we begin to realize that we are being written into a different story. God's story of the gospel 
And that we now have the opportunity to serve God, one another, and the world because Christ came in service to the Father and us and the world by dying on the cross in our place for our sins. And the only reason that that was ever possible, the forgiveness of sins, is because Christ was willing to serve. He was willing to humble himself. He was willing to take the lowest place. And of course, the cross is the best picture and explanation of that. But Jesus would break it down real simple for his disciples. You see, his disciples would often argue about who was the greatest. They were just like us. Don't we do this all the time? We, we may do it in more subtle ways. Yesterday, I went skateboarding with some of my friends. And in very subtle ways, I was pointing out where I was better than them. <laughs> or where my son was better than my friend's son. Just subtly pointed it out. Just these real subtle, very, um, uh, very polite American ways of arguing who's the greatest. Well, the disciples did the same sort of thing. They would argue who was the greatest. And then they had an occasion one evening where this came to the forefront, where this issue sort of surfaced. They got together here in John chapter 13 for the Passover meal. Very important meal in the Jewish life. And generally speaking, in that culture, when you would go into a house for a meal, you would get your feet washed, okay? Because you wore sandals and the streets were not paved and so it was dirty. And when you ate in that culture, you reclined at a table sort of sideways. So inevitably, your head was always going to be by somebody's feet. So culture dictated, listen, dude, we're going to wash our feet before we come to the table. And so most homes would have servants during that time. And it was a job of the lowest servant in the household to wash the feet of guests when they came in. That's what the lowest servant would do. Well, they had sort of a rented facility for this Passover meal. And so there there was no servant at the door. So the disciples came in and there they are reclined around the table and nobody has washed anybody's feet because there was nobody to do it. And apparently it was beneath them. There's a tremendous need. Everybody's got dirty feet here. But none of them was willing to humble themselves, take the low place, And begin to do that. So we know the story. What Christ does is he takes the place of the lowest slave of the house, gets a towel, and he washes the filthy feet of every single disciple in that room. And then Jesus says this as we pick it up in verse 12. After washing their feet, Jesus put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. And now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 14. Since I wash your feet, you ought to do the same. We have this paradigm in the New Testament that we've talked about a lot when we were studying Galatians of indicatives and imperatives, okay? An indicative is a statement of fact. An imperative is a command. So an indicative would be the door is shut, statement of fact. Shut the door would be an imperative, a command. 
Anytime we have a command in Scripture, it's always backed up by an indicative. In other words, there's something substantive that stands behind the commands of Scripture. It's not like we do as parents. Do it because I said so. Why? Because I said so. That's not the way God works. There's always something substantive behind it. There's an indicative driving the imperative. The indicative of verse 14 is Jesus says, I have done this for you. I'm the Lord and I'm your teacher. And I got a towel and I got down on my hands and knees and I washed your feet. That's a statement of fact. The imperative, the command is, so you should do it for one another. What's substantive behind it is the example of the person of Christ, showing us how humanity ought to function as it should be in the image of God. The imperative is, if I have done this for you, and he's done it for all of us in the cross, he's washed us. If I've done this for you, then you ought to serve one another in a like way. He says, I've given you an example that you should follow. There's only two times in all of the New Testament where we're told explicitly that Christ gave us an example. It's here with regards to self-sacrificial service and it's in 1 Peter where Peter says Christ gave us an example that we should suffer. That suffering is a normal part of the Christian experience and that Christ gave us an example of that. We wish he gave us an example as surfers were like, okay, how about walking on water? How about that example? Show us how to do that. Is people have to pay taxes? How about when you guys caught the fish and you pulled the money out of the mouth of the fish? We want those sort of examples. But we're given this example of self-sacrificial servanthood and suffering. Jesus says, because I, the Lord of the universe, have washed your feet, so you should wash the feet of one another. Now, now, Paul presses the example of Christ even further as we go to Philippians chapter 2. Turn there. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul speaking, we'll start in verse 1. He says some rhetorical questions here to start. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. There's some imperatives, right? Some commands, love one another. Work together. Verse three, don't be selfish. And try to impress others. There's another imperative. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Another command, imperative. Don't look out only for your own interests, but for the interests in others too. Another imperative. And then he gets to the indicative. Why do we do that? Well, have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Verse six, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. And he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So there again, we have the example of Christ, what Christ has done for humanity and how we are to respond then as humanity. Because Christ humbled himself, humble yourself. Because Christ died in our place. Consider other people's place. 
Because Christ was sacrificed that we might be forgiven and well. Be willing to sacrifice so that others might be well. And this brings up this issue that there is no service without sacrifice. You see, what what we often see is that we're willing to serve as long as we don't have to sacrifice. I I would say that that, that, that's not a biblical reality. That that what Jesus exemplifies, what we're called to because of what he did, is self-sacrificial service. I can remember when Haiti went down and you were able to text, you know, to donate 10 cents, send a text to this. Okay, that's good. I don't don't know that we'd call that service. I, I, I see what... What people often do when, when they come into church. Hey, I'll be there if I can. I'll, I'll help in that way if I'm able. If it doesn't put me out, if it doesn't interrupt my schedule, if it doesn't ask too much of me, if it's convenient for me, if the surf isn't good that day, then I'll be there and I'll make it. That's, that's often how we approach this idea. But, but what we need to know is that biblically speaking, that isn't service. That there is no service without sacrifice. By definition, according to Christ, to serve is to sacrifice. Now, the early church, who was closest to the example of Christ, began to get this in the way that they lived. Let's look at that in Acts. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. In Acts, chapter 2, everything is going well. The Holy Spirit has come. Peter preaches fiery sermon. 3,000 got saved in one day. And then we have these sort of summary statements, okay, of how the life of the church is unfolding as we get to verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. It says in Acts 2, 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day and then met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The strong theme in that passage is sharing. It's mentioned four times in six verses. And they shared. They shared everything that they had. They sold their possessions and they shared with those in need. They were sharing meals. The strong theme here is the idea of sharing. There was this sense that I'm willing to give up to do and to give for those in the body of believers who cannot or don't have. That that was a tone and a tenor of the life of those who were nearest to the example of Christ that we have in the Gospels. And then we see it develop as the church progresses as you turn to Acts chapter 6 now. The church is growing and it's experiencing growing pains and they're having to reorganize and restructure and figure out how to do things to meet the demands of all the needs of so many people coming into the body of believers. And so it says in Acts chapter 6 verse 1, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Always happens when a church grows quickly. 
There were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll give them this responsibility. Then the apostles, then we apostles, can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. And everyone liked this idea. And they chose the following. Stephen, Philip, there's a list of men. Then we get to verse 6. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them and laid their hands on them. Verse 7. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And many of the Jewish priests were converted too. All I want to say about that is this. The sharing of ministry allowed for effective mission. The sharing of ministry allowed for effective, expansive mission. Less people would have been saved if less people were doing the work. If the the apostles were always running the food program, then there would have been less mission. We wouldn't have read verse 7 the same way. So God's message continued to spread. How? Through the preaching of the apostles. The number of believers greatly increased. And even the Jewish priests were being converted. Why? Because more people in the church said, we got to do this together. More of us have to sacrifice. More of us have to give for the furtherance of the mission to God's glory. And so because of the book of Acts and because of the example of Christ, we understand that that is how the church... The community of Christ should go forward in mission. But it's difficult for us because we seem to often have a stronger impulse and desire to be served than to serve. We have a stronger desire to be comfortable than to sacrifice. I I do, usually. I have a greater desire to be comfortable than to sacrifice because that's the human condition. And so what we'll do then is is we'll modify what service ought to look like. We'll say, I'll serve and I'll serve self-sacrificially as long as I know there's a ladder attached to this thing. As long as I know that somehow I can move upward in this thing. As long as I'm sure that it will include some sort of recognition, some upward mobility, some more opportunities, some power and authority, then I'll serve self-sacrificially. We do that because we're Americans and we're raised in American corporate culture. They said, you do whatever you can do to get up the ladder. And so many within the church would say, well, if there's a ladder attached, then I'll do just about anything you ask me to do. The disciples, even though they were cultures removed and thousands of years removed, had that same sense of wanting to move up. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're getting a little Bible workout today. Mark chapter 10, toward the end of the chapter. Mark 10, we'll start in verse 35. It says... James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do us a favor. And Jesus said, what, What's your request? And they replied, 
when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and one on your left. Jesus said to them, you don't really know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering? I must be baptized with speaking of the cross, of course. Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you, you will. You will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering, meaning what they would suffer in the service of the gospel in the future. Verse 40, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. That's another sermon for another day. Look at verse 41. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. They were upset. Why were they upset? Probably because they didn't think of it first. I think that's why they're upset. I I don't think that they were appalled, James and John, how dare you? Because we know from the history of the disciples that they together vied for a position and argued about who was the greatest. I think they were indignant, they were upset because James and John had a great idea from their perspective. Dang, they got it first. They're the first up the ladder. And so we pick it up in verse 42. So Jesus called the boys together and said, listen, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Look what he says in verse 43. But among you, it's going to be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. Then he gives us the indicative, the substantive truth behind it. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. We want places of honor. Back in Mark chapter 9, in verse 33, the disciples and Jesus are walking along and it says in Mark 9, 33, after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in the house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. <laughs> They're so busted. <laughs> Verse 35, so Jesus sat down, called the 12 disciples over and said, listen, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. They had already heard it, but there is this driving impulse of wanting honor. And Jesus, we will sacrifice for your mission. We just want to know at the end, when you're on your glorious throne, that there's going to be some payoff. We want to know there's a ladder attached to this thing. But Jesus said to them, it's going to be different with you guys. You see, those in my kingdom don't function like those in the world. The the kingdom of the world rejoices in authority, lords it over them, holds it over people. He says, but but it's going to be different with you. You're, You're in a different kingdom. You're living by different rules according to a different reality. You have a different king, and this is an upside down kingdom. And the ones who want to be first should be last and and the quality of the kingdom, the call of the kingdom is that of servanthood. It's going to be different with you. 
You see, when I sat on the couch that night with my wife, it wasn't different with me. You see, I, I was functioning according to the old story, not the new story of the gospel. I was functioning according to the flesh, not, not the spirit of God in me. It, it wasn't any different than me. My strongest impulse was to be comfortable and to be served. But the Bible declares that for the Christian, the Spirit of God is working in us to make us more like Jesus, who suffered self-sacrificially on our behalf. Romans chapter 8 says, For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son. You see, God is at work in us to make us more like Jesus. So that night on the couch, even though I won, so to speak, there was this turmoil in me. It's bugging me at this moment. There was this this turmoil going on in me because there's a new story that I've been written into, the story of the gospel. And the indicative of the gospel is Christ gave himself for us. So we now give ourselves for Christ, we now give ourselves for one another, and we give ourselves for the world. And so there's this tension between the old story and the new story, the flesh and the spirit. And, and, and the strong, ancient, fallen impulse to serve self plays it out in all areas of our lives, in, in our finances, in our work, in our play, and in our sexuality. And the new story of the gospel begins to unravel that in our lives because we have been ultimately completely served by the person of Jesus Christ. There's a new impulse in us and we need to foster that, partner with Christ in us. And so that what we do then as a church, as as a gospel community, is we put the kingdom on display. We show the world, here's what the kingdom of Christ looks like. It's different, isn't it? So we do that when we're scattered, the church scattered, when we're out there in the world doing our stuff. Okay, we go and we serve people and we serve our our husbands and our wives and our children and our communities. And we do that when we gather. We serve each other. Now, when you're scattered, that, that kingdom is not always super evident because we're scattered among the counter kingdom. And so there just may be a couple believers here and there trying to exhibit this new kingdom, but it's not that obvious because the counter kingdom is so prevalent. But when we get together, all of us gospel people who have been served by Christ on the cross and have a new impulse, a new life in us, modeled after the Trinity, selfless serving, when we get together, there should be like a critical mass of new kingdomness where we're like falling over each other to serve each other. Because we have needs and, and there's, there's this new life in us. We, we should be literally, hey, let me get that. No, 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 let me get that. No, let me get that. No, no, let me get that. Is there a ladder attached to that? None whatsoever. Okay, good. Let me get that. Let me get that. We should almost be falling over each other to serve. So that when the unredeemed world, when a, when a non-Christian comes in and sees us all together, they should say things like, oh my goodness, and you come in here and there's people, hello, hello. And you're, there's people helping you park your car. Who helps you park your car? 
you come in and, and there's coffee and there's snacks and there's people making it and there's people straightening up in the restrooms and, and then you just give your, they're taking care of your kids. Like everyone's watching out for each other's kids and they're praying for each other and they're crying on each other's shoulders and they're talking things through and they're meeting each other's needs. That, that, that's what they ought to see is like this, this critical mass explosion of this otherworldliness of the image of God and the kingdom of Christ in us when we get together. So that in, in my estimation, it, it would be strange when, when non-believers come in and if they were to visit repeatedly to hear someone stand at this pulpit and ask week in and week out, we need people for children's ministry. We need people to set up chairs. We need people to deliver meals to the hurting. We... It would seem strange to them that why in this community of service modeled after the Trinity and the cross, why are there so many unmet needs? Why do they have to stand at the pulpit and beg people to take care of one another's kids on Sunday? All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had, it said in Acts 2.44. And the reason that they did that was they realized how they had been served by Christ. And they realized that they had everything that they needed in Jesus Christ, so they were willing to sell their stuff. I, I, honestly, I don't expect any of you to do that. But, but that, that's where they were at. They, they, they so realized how they'd been served by Christ and that they had everything that they needed in Jesus. They said, you, you need my stuff? Here's, here's my stuff. We got some unmet needs? Here, let me do that. All of our serving them for our wives, our husbands, our kids, our community in the world, in the church, all of our serving must be solely based upon that fact. I serve because I've been served by Christ. Just like First John, we love because he first loved us. That is an impetus for all of our service. We serve because we have been served by Christ. Now, here's where I'll end. Those of us who are serving, we have to keep that front and center. I am doing what I'm doing in the world, in my family, in the church. I'm doing what I'm doing because of what Christ has done for me. If you don't keep that front and center, then you will get burnt out, weary, and bitter. You'll get burnt out because you'll start to lose vision. Why am I doing this? Why am I the only one doing this? You'll get weary because there's just never going to be enough people to shoulder it. From what I could tell, in our church, there'll just never be enough people. And you'll get bitter because nobody's helping you. But see, subtly in your heart, you begin to forget, I'm doing this because Christ has served me and I have everything I need in him. So that's why I do this. You see, when when we keep that front and center, and I've got to tell myself this every single week, that keeps us from weary bitterness. And the other thing that that keeps us from is it keeps us from looking for recognition, promotion, and payment. When you realize that Jesus paid your price on the cross, when you were totally undeserving, a sinner on your way to hell, then when you begin to serve, you're not looking for payment. You're not looking for promotion. You're not needing recognition. You're serving because of what what Christ has done for you. 
You stop saying things like, I've given so much to this church. I've poured so much in. Where's my upward ladder? Where's my spot? Where's my recompense? And then that frees us when we serve because Christ has served us from a sense of entitlement. I'm doing this. I deserve something out of this. No, Christ has served us fully and perfectly when we're undeserving and we have everything that we need in him. So, So it frees us from that tension of nobody's helping Where's my promotion? Where's my recognition? Where's my payment? I'm entitled to some of that. Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, went to the house of a Pharisee for dinner. And a woman came barging in. This is the craziest story. This woman comes barging in. And it says in the New Living Translation, she was an immoral woman. It says in the English Standard Version and the New American Standard, she was a woman of the city. That means she was a prostitute. Those are euphemisms for she was, she was a whore. She comes barging in to this private dinner Jesus is having at this Pharisee's house. She falls at the feet of Jesus. She's got this, 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 this container of perfume, expensive perfume. She falls at the feet of Jesus. She begins to weep. She covers his feet with tears. She pours out the ointment on his feet and she begins to wipe the feet of Christ with her hair. And the Pharisee said in the quietness of his heart, if Jesus knew what a whore she was, he wouldn't wouldn't be down with that. And Jesus, knowing his heart, said, I have something to say to you. I came to your house. You didn't wash my feet. I came into your house. You didn't greet me with a kiss. I came to your house. You didn't give me ointment to anoint my hair. Yet this woman has not stopped kissing and anointing and washing my feet with her hair. And then he said this. He said, those who have been forgiven much, love much. And I deduce from that this. Those who sense that they have been served much by God draping himself in humanity, being beaten, mocked, scourged, and crucified in their place, serve much for the betterment of others. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to be those people. Lord, I I confess in my own heart right now that it's often like the heart of the Pharisee. I, I don't want to be that person in the story. I want to be like the woman who knew the way that she had been served in your love and forgiven by your cross and poured it all out at your feet. Lord, we want our lives to be poured out for your mission, your purposes. But we have this ancient selfish impulse in us and we're asking now for your help. We're asking the Holy Spirit, you give us a fresh revelation of the gospel and what has been done for us as undeserving sinners. And Lord, I I, I would repent before the church of my own shocking selfishness. And we would ask that you would simply Make us more like Jesus, humble, willing to serve, willing to sacrifice for others. Lord, work that in us for your glory. 
and by your spirit. Lord, this can't be another religious thing we try to muster up. We fail at that every time. We just can't do it. Thank you that you've not called us to do it. Thank you that you not only left us an example, but you left us your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Work these things in our lives for the glory of Christ and the furtherance of his mission. In Jesus' name, amen.